This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. And I think the issue is that often we detach our little prayers from the big prayers that dominate the scriptures. Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm your host, Jonathan Master, and our guest today is Dr. Gary Miller. He is principal of Queensland Theological College in Australia, where he also teaches Old Testament, biblical theology, and preaching. He's the author of a number of books. Included among them is the book on preaching with by far the best title of any book on preaching, Saving Eutychus. But today we'd like to talk with him about the subject of another book he's written, which is entitled Calling on the Name of the Lord, A Biblical Theology of Prayer. Our subject today is prayer. Our guest is Dr. Miller, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be part of the podcast. Well, the, the title of your book, Calling on the Name of the Lord, I, I it, it seems to refer to Genesis 4, where it says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. But I wanted to kind of start there and ask, how does this phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, frame or, or set the stage for the rest of what we see in Scripture about prayer? Well, I think if I can uh, start kind of way back in the with the genesis of the book, that five or six years ago I was asked to teach a series on prayer, which is enough to make anyone nervous. And as I as I started to think about this, I I thought, well, I've read a lot of kind of systematic theological treatments of prayer. I'd read books on prayer, and I noticed that in the the books that I read tended to assume what prayer was and then go looking for scriptures to try to justify that or to take a, a valid and important approach, you know, to jump into the Lord's Prayer and to, to kind of read everything else through that. And I thought it would be really helpful to go and find a book that just started at the beginning of the Bible and looked at what God has said about prayer from the beginning in a kind of progressive revelation way. I couldn't find the book. I happened to be talking to um, to Dr. John Carson and said, asked Don if there was a book that I was missing. And he said, I don't think there is. And he said, why don't you write one? And and that's really where it began. And as I did, I just started reading through Genesis and suddenly came across this striking phrase, which is, I think is the first mention of prayer in the Bible when at a very odd moment after the birth of Enosh, at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. And so that's where I came as, at this phrase. And, you know, I think if that's the first statement about prayer, there is a sense in which there's something definitional about this, this introduction to the way in which people like us speak to the God of Eden after humanity has been expelled from Eden. So I wonder if you could unpack that then a little bit. If that's the starting point, so to speak, of our theology of prayer as it unfolds in the scriptures, where does that where does that take you? How does that help explain or set the stage for all that's to follow? Well, I think it's it's actually not complex, but it's often missed that we have this little statement at a very odd part in the narrative because we've we've had Genesis three the fall. We've then had that that extravagant and slightly enigmatic promise in Genesis 3.15. 
where God has said he will do something to remedy what has just happened through the seed of the woman and through a conflict with the, the seed of the serpent, then the big question that has to be in the mind of a reader is, well, when is this seed going to come? Who is this seed? And I think that if you simply read Genesis 1 to 3, then the only, the only seeds, that, as in descendants, that are there are Cain and Abel. So we read the start of Genesis 4, and then it turns out, well, it's quite obvious quite quickly that neither Cain nor Abel is going to be the one who will undo the effects of what has just happened because Cain murders Abel. And then we find Seth appearing at the, the end of Genesis 4 that, that another, another man is born to Eve and our hopes are raised again. Could this be the one? But Seth simply is born and then dies. I think one of the surprising things in the early part of Genesis. And then Enosh arrives and the same pattern. We, we don't get any narrative detail about Enosh. He comes and goes. And then the statement that at that time, people began to call in the name of the Lord. Now, in the context of Genesis 1 to 4, the only thing that they can be calling to God about is actually the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 3.15. And I think that's a, a kind of seminal observation where Genesis sets us up then to read all further meaningful interaction with God as God's people on earth asking God to come through on what he has promised. Now, I think you can pick that up from lots of places, but I would argue that it's actually implied from the very first mention of prayer. And that then launched me on a journey to read the rest of the scriptures, initially to see how much of the prayer that is recorded or how much of the teaching on prayer that's laid out in scripture does actually fall under this pretty simple rubric that prayer is asking God to do what he's promised, to call on the name of the Lord, who is the kind of promise-making, the covenantal God who has already committed himself in grace to provide the solution to the problem that is just dramatically arisen in Genesis 3. So would you say then that all the sort of model prayers of the Bible follow that pattern, that they all are responses to a promise of God and they're praying along those lines, sort of like Daniel 9, where he reads yep. Jeremiah's prophecy and then asks for it. Is that the model that we see in Scripture? Yep, I think we see the same model over and over and over again. It does explain a, a puzzling thing that, that had struck me over the years, but I didn't really have an answer for it and almost just couldn't quite articulate what the, what the issue was. But when we read these model prayers, quite often the first half or two-thirds of the prayer is actually taken up with rehearsing what God has done and said in the past. And it's not simply praise to God, although it is that and it includes that, but it is saying our God is the God who has made all these promises. And then the actual kind of petition, what is asked for in the prayer, it tends to be quite short and simple. And it basically amounts to, you know, Lord, please remember the mess we're in. And you do realize that doesn't seem to fit with what you've said before. No, I think that then ties in with lots of material in all the way across the Bible. But, for example, when Jesus says, you don't need to pray as the pagans do. No, you don't need to pray long, extravagant prayers, but simply, simply ask God. But what do we ask God for? Well, we ask God to do what he has promised. 
I think it also ties in with with something that's quite unusual about some of the Old Testament prayers, and that's that's almost it's what they leave out rather than what they include. You know, so you look at Hannah's prayer at the beginning of First Samuel, where you have this kind of tortured, childless woman who then conceives. And when you read her prayer, she barely mentions the, the gift of the child. You know, in fact, she's more concerned with the Messiah coming at the end of her prayer than with the birth of Samuel himself. I do think that's the author of Samuel's way of setting Hannah up primarily as a model of someone who realized that her great need was to see the promise of God realized in, in a king to come. We also find in Solomon's prayer in First Kings 8, at the dedication of the temple, that he hardly mentions the temple, which is not the norm. If you've ever been at a dedication of a church building, I'd be surprised if you've been at one where the person praying completely forgot to mention the bricks and mortar that have just been erected. But that's exactly what Solomon does. And his prayer ranges on to what will happen in the future what will happen actually when God's people disobey and are coming back to him, asking him to come through on his promises despite their disobedience um, in and beyond uh, the exile that was several hundred years ahead. So for us today, it seems like one of the applications, implications of that is that we too need to be immersed in the scriptures. We have to understand what the promises of God are in order to pray effectively and to pray biblically. Yes, yep, I think that's true. You know, whilst I wouldn't want to say this is exhaustive, it it isn't that the scriptures kind of preclude saying certain things to God, but the vast majority of the material is encouraging us to ask for the things that God has already promised. You know, so that what should be the preoccupation of our prayers? Well, You know, we should be asking for forgiveness. We should be asking for wisdom, you know, to live in the light of the gospel. We should be asking for strength to do what God has told us. We should be asking God to bring his kingdom through, you know, through the preaching of the gospel to every part of every corner of the earth. And as I worked on this, you know, and just in my own kind of in my local church, you know, praying with brothers and sisters, I was quite struck that we've got the balance quite spectacularly wrong on occasion. That lots of our prayers, it's not that they are deeply radical, but it is that our concerns are so much smaller than the concerns that God is encouraging us to pray about. I mean, I think of the prayer, you know, Peter and John, after they've been detained by the Sanhedrin in, in Acts 4, I mean, their prayer is just remarkable. You know, that when they're released from prison, what do they pray about? They actually pray this sweeping kind of redemptive historical prayer saying what we are experiencing is exactly what we we would expect. Um, Lord, you know, remember all this. You're working out your purpose. Please just give us boldness to keep doing what we were doing before. Amen. And I think that's the balance of biblical prayer. There is this glorious freedom in trusting yourself to God because we understand ourselves to be part of something, this grand salvation project, you know, which centers on the church. So we pray for the progress of that. And there's almost a disregard of our own fate or suffering, or it's not that our small concerns aren't unimportant, but they are dwarfed by these huge kind of salvation issues, this great cause for which we have the privilege of spending our lives in the service of of Jesus. 
So you frame this in terms of a change in um, priorities, a sort of rebalancing of our prayer life in congregations and as individuals. Sometimes as I've taught similar material in churches, the response is, well, so are you telling me I can't pray for, you know, fill in the blank request that's not on the scale of those grand promises of God. Um, so how would you answer that? Are there things then we shouldn't pray for? Um, I think, well, the only things we shouldn't, we shouldn't pray for are things that are quite obviously at odds with the gospel that are contrary to the gospel. But I think what the Bible gives us the license to, to bring all manner of things to God but to do so in a way where we acknowledge that these this is not the main game, that these are the these are not the big things. That yes, God understands, but but we need to get beyond that. You know, so I, I mean I was intrigued. I was preaching with Jeremiah yesterday in College Chapel and Jeremiah forty five, uh, God actually gives a message to to Baruch from Jeremiah saying where Baruch has clearly been having a whinge, saying, woe to me, this is all just so hard. And God says, look, I know you're miserable. Seek not great things for yourself, but look to what I am doing in the world, effectively, in terms of the judgment of all flesh. So I think that our prayers, we can mention all these things, but we need to realize that while we bring all that to God, that there is a sense in which God will order all that small, all those little things. They may not feel little to us, but all those, if you like, secondary things, he will bring all that into line with his great purpose for us, which is that we be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ and in his mercy be used to promote his glory in the universe. And that all our little prayers he will sort out and will answer or decline in line with that great purpose. But in the meantime, God says, I want you to focus your prayers on my great kingdom. I think that's exactly what Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer. It's not that the reality of our lives is completely excluded, but the reality of our life is set in his kingdom purpose. And prayer begins and ends, in a sense, with praying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring everything that I am, all that I'm going through into line with that and use all the details of my life to that great end. And I think the issue is that often we detach our little prayers from the big prayers that dominate the scriptures. Often it shows in an effective denial of the fact that we will all one day die and that the the big issue is not how long we stay alive. It is actually the work of our of the gospel in and through us whilst we are alive. You know, it's sooner or later, our prayers for healing, recovery, you know, whilst they are perfectly natural and legitimate, we pray those prayers knowing that one day we will pray that prayer for ourselves and for those closest to us. Um, and it will not be answered because something greater is waiting for us. I wonder, you mentioned the Lord's Prayer, and I wonder if you saw any significant changes or if you could explain the changes that you did see, I should say, between the Old Testament revelation about prayer and the New Testament revelation about prayer. I think there is a strong degree of continuity, but given the fact that 
in the Old Testament, there is this growing sense that the big promises have not yet been fulfilled. And I think that's true of every part of the Old Testament, not just the teaching on prayer, that after, particularly through the, the period of the monarchy and Israel's repeated failure, and then the exile and, and the return from exile, which is really a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a damp squib. It, it, it's a disappointment all round and that growing sense that God's people desperately need God to intervene, to refresh the covenant, to, to honor the promises of Deuteronomy 30. So as the Old Testament progresses, there is a growing sense of, Lord, we need you to do this. Then, of course, the Lord Jesus comes, and in his life, death, resurrection, all these promises are fulfilled, although we wait for the, the absolute fulfillment of some. But prayer, then, is based on the fact that God has already fulfilled his promises. Therefore, we ask him to continue what he has dramatically said in train until we reach the new creation. So I think we are much closer to our destination but the basic shape of prayer remains. We're asking the promise-keeping God to fulfill his promises. And why do we do that? We do that because God tells us to do it. You know, it's, it's, that, it's that simple. I wanted to end with one last question. I remember um, hearing a sermon on prayer. I actually don't remember too much of the substance of it, to be honest. It was a little earlier in my Christian life. But one thing I remember was the preacher over and over again said something like this, prayer is, I forget whether he said it's one of the hardest things, or he may have said it's the hardest thing you'll do as a Christian. And whether whether or not it's the hardest thing, no question, uh, it's something that we struggle with as Christians. It's something that frequently people see their need to grow in. And so what kind of advice would you give to the Christian who struggles with prayer? Yeah, I think the first thing is, I think it's hard because we live in a fallen world, but prayer is given for a fallen world. One of the things that I think if you read through the whole Bible, when you get to Revelation, there is no need to call on the name of God to fulfill his promises because they're all fulfilled. We will be with our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We will see him face to face. So in that sense, that comes as an encouragement to me because it says, okay, that's the goal. That's what we're heading for. In the meantime, in the mess of this world where we live as, as broken, forgiven sinners, God has given us prayer to help us to get there and to use in his kind of stunning providence to move us along and to grow the church and proclaim his glory. So there's a sense in which it's okay for it to be hard because it is designed for a fallen world. But also, I think we need to realize why we find it so hard. And that's, that's because we are so proud and self-reliant that prayer, asking God to do something, is always harder than just trying to do it ourselves. And it's completely curious that you know, we would imagine that we're going to be able to do something more effectively than the Almighty God. But that's who we are as as sinful members of the human race. We have this inbuilt drive to self-sufficiency, um, to do it ourselves. And the problem is when we sit on or you know, kneel or wherever our posture is, we are in effect admitting ultimately we've got nothing here. We can't do this. We can't 
fix anything. We can't change ourselves. We don't have the resources apart from Christ even to live in obedience. So it's, it's hard to face the fact that we've got nothing and we need to rely on the God who has rescued us and is changing us and is equipping us by his spirit. So I think, I think if we recognize that the real issue is self-reliance, not actually, it's not prayer, because when we read what the New Testament says about prayer, you don't have to pray for a long time. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to know the right words to say. You do just have to, in the words of James, you just have to humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up because he's promised. And prayer is, in essence, saying, please do what you've promised, Father, through the Lord Jesus in the power of the Spirit. That's, I think, the perfect note to end on. And so, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for your work on this book, which I would commend to our listeners. And also, thank you for your time today. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. The subject of our interview today was the topic of prayer. And we'd like to offer you the opportunity to get a free copy of Dr. Miller's book, Calling on the Name of the Lord. All you have to do is go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a, a link in there to enter to win this book. It's, it's an excellent book that I would commend to all of you. It really helps unfold this biblical theology of prayer. It's written in very clear language, and I think its theological emphases are right on target. Again, the book is called Calling on the Name of the Lord by Dr. Gary Miller. We do want to thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. As you know, all of our podcasts, all of our material is dependent on the support of listeners like you. And so we ask, if you're able to make a donation, that perhaps you could do that either on placefortruth.org. There's a, there's a place to donate there. Or on alliancenet.org, alliancenet.org. And thanks again for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>